Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. My name's Carl Dowling. I'm your host for the program. It's great to have your company. We're coming to you live, of course, from the uh, Calm Radio Studios here on Aranda Country in Central Australia. We're broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 and on 8KNFM here in Abantu Alice Springs. We're, of course, as well, coming to you online as well through our website at uh, karma.com.au. Today's uh, Wednesday, it's the middle of the working week. It's the 17th of July, 2019. Coming up on Strong Voices today, uh, at the weekend, Queensland followed in the steps of jurisdictions like Victoria and the Northern Territory, with the state government announcing its first steps towards treaties uh, with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yesterday, I spoke with uh, Jackie Huggins, co-chair of the uh, Eminent Panel Group, which is heading up that treaty process in Queensland. We're going to hear what she has to say about that process uh, soon. Also, uh, recent media coverage on a Monash Monash University Aboriginal astrophysicist has uh, again opened up conversations about the involvement of First Nations peoples at the highest levels of research in academia. Uh, Dwayne Harmaker is a uh, is an associate professor of Indigenous astronomy and science, uh, research and culture and historical astronomy at the University of Melbourne, and he's going to be joining us uh, today as well. Also, in celebration of the United Nations General Assembly International Year of Indigenous Languages, Karma Music did launch the uh, Thurka uh, Endangered Languages Music Series. We're going to be hearing from uh, Stuart Nugget, who's one of the artists involved in that series. And of course, as well, going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Before all of that, though, we are going to head to a quick break and then we'll be right back. On top of our own strong face, Nana, news about Nguyen Mapa or Nguyen Commuting or your stationing, Calm Radio and 8KN FM. Well, last weekend, the Queensland Palaszczuk government announced it would begin the process towards treaty in the state, releasing a statement of commitment to reset the relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Aboriginal leader and academic Jackie Huggins and former Federal Attorney-General Michael Lavarch will lead the eminent panel overseeing the treaty process in the state. To discuss the treaty process in Queensland, I spoke with uh, Ms Huggins yesterday. On the last day of uh, NAIDOC week, uh, Queensland took its first steps towards treaty uh, following the announcement of the tracks to treaty. Can you begin by explaining uh, what that pathway is actually all about? This is the beginning of negotiations and uh, conversations around treaty in Queensland. What I'll be doing is co-chairing an eminent panel uh, of people consisting of people like the ex-Governor-General, Dame Quentin Bryce, 
Kerry O'Brien from the um, ABC and uh, Josephine Bourne, the Torres Strait Islander woman from Townsville, and uh, Mick Gooder. They're on the uh, eminent panel uh, with me. Under that, we'll have a, a, a working group to uh, work through the consultations to do them. And then uh, we will report back as the eminent panel to uh, advise on a proposed uh, framework for future uh, negotiations for for Queensland, and that includes the timing, processes and next steps. So it's very much akin to the style of model that was put up for the Referendum Council, uh, very similar. Now, as we know, this sort of follows in the steps of, of places like Victoria and, and the Northern Territory in terms of progression towards treaty. For, for you yes. personally, how and why did you get involved in this process? Oh, I think um, as a veteran for four decades... Uh, uh, a lot of my working life has been around the discussion about um, reconciliation and, and uh, you know, treaties was a, a component of that. In fact, uh, the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation, uh, one of its recommendations was to forge treaties with our people. But in those days, I mean, you know, that was 25 years ago, uh, it was pretty much a, um uh, unspoken word because... It was felt that it was loaded and perhaps, you know, we should use the terms agreement or a um, compact. But, you know, I think it's really got into the Australian vocabulary now and people know the word treaty, so that's good. So I think it's a, just a progression of where I sit and as a, as a Queenslander, uh, I think my experience around national and international work that I've done in terms of uh, treaties and looking at um, uh, the voice and, and nation building and so forth, that um, uh, the Deputy Premier saw fit to appoint me and my co-chair is uh, the ex-attorney uh, general, Mr Michael Lavarch. So, uh, you know, pleased to be working uh, with him as well. For you, in terms of moving forward, you know, we've seen mob, as you're mentioning, over the years talking about treaties. For, for you, why are treaties the way forward? Why is it important for Australia to have treaties with the First Nations peoples of this country? Well, firstly, it will address a great historical wrong in that, uh, you know, Captain Cook came to this country with the expressed wishes not to uh, take the country without the natives' consent. And, uh, of course, uh, that did not happen. There was an invasion that happened here in Australia. I think this is a way of saying, well, look, that happened. We really do need to address this issue of, you know, this long overdue debt that's owed to Aboriginal uh, people in this country. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is it will look at a, a relationship between us that... Uh, you know, we've never quite been able to come to terms with. It will also look at, you know, the rightful justice that our people need to have in our own cities, our own towns, regional areas, bush towns, etc. So it's about starting the conversation here in Queensland and that to be facilitated uh, right across the state, right up to the Torres Straits and as far south as Coolangatta here. And what happens after that is there'll be a consultation paper that will be publicly released. And, you know, we're really hoping to engage all Queenslanders 
of every part of the community as well. So it's about time that we, we started, as have, you know, um, Northern Territory, South Australia, WA, other states, Victoria, who've uh, really now looked at, you know, what a treaty might bring us. And in, in terms of these discussions, you were, you were mentioning it about, you know, that understanding of the word treaties is, is you know, getting more understood by people nowadays. Do, do you think this is a, an additional opportunity as those consultations go out for people who, who may still be a bit on the fence or not understand what it's about to actually learn and, and gain that understanding of what this is about and what impact it could potentially have? Yes, and, you know, I've seen that time and time again in the past 40 years. If you give people some information about what the concept is about and why we want it, those reasons and how they can be involved, you know, I, I really do think that kind of can change the nature of the narrative uh, and, and the way that, you know, we relate to uh, to each other. And we've just seen a lot of issues that have been sometimes people have shied away from that have been, you know, brought to the Australian public through education. And, uh, you know, I, I speak of probably the marriage equality one, for instance, that had a, a, a very successful campaign. And what we're saying here in Queensland is that we're not going to rush it. You know, it might take a couple of years or so, um, but at least we've started the process of having those conversations with all Queenslanders, you know, right across um, this state. And definitely, I think a, a lot of people will definitely be feeling the sentiment that, it, you know, it's something that has to be done correctly. And if it does need to take that extra bit of time to make sure that it is, I, th- I think most people are going to be on, on that sort of page. F- yeah. f- for you then, uh, as an Aboriginal person, you know, from Queensland, w- what are your aspirations for, from this whole sort of treaty process? What, what would you like to see come out of this? I'd like to see some way in which the public are informed that they... Uh, will understand, you know, the implications of um, what a treaty might bring us. And I hope that, you know, we can um, really have that recognition, justice and healing that uh, needs to be part of the package that goes with uh, treaty making, that goes with truth-telling. And as we've seen last week in our NAIDOC week, you know, the concept of voice, treaty and uh, truth, that theme was uh, very apparent. I would love to see a continuation of that, um, like most NAIDOC themes, you know, because of who we can, not only for that week, but certainly uh, throughout the year. And um, I think this is a great opportunity that we're able to put it on the front foot now and, and put it in the spotlight of this state and follow the rest of the states who have actually embarked on their treaty processes as well. That was Jackie Huggins, co-chair of the Eminent Panel, which will be overseeing the treaty process in Queensland. We're going to head to a quick break now, but stick around because very soon we'll be hearing from uh, Stuart Nuggets, an Aboriginal musical artist. Hey, you fellas, this is Gail Mabe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8Kin FM. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices, and if you've just joined me, you heal me, Carl Dowling. It's great to have your company this uh, Wednesday morning. It's around 23 minutes past 11 o'clock. 
We're going to head into our next story now. Uh, Stuart Nugget is a uh, Jingili man from uh, Elliot, which sits between Darwin and Alice Springs here in the Northern Territory. Uh, Stuart has been playing uh, music and writing music since he was very young. Uh, and he was recently a part of the uh, Sarka Indigenous uh, Languages Music Series, which was recently launched by Kame Music. And it was in celebration of the United Nations General Assembly uh, International Year of Indigenous Languages. Karma's Damien Williams recently spoke with uh, Stuart Nugget about his music and a bit about the uh, series. I did the recording last year uh, through Thurka and uh, it's been a, a journey. Uh, it's been great. Um, and to see the end result, it's you know, the album now coming out. It's been great. A wonderful journey. Yeah, good to see the result. Why did you choose to uh, get involved with the Thurka project? Because the uh, opportunity that we had doing through Thurka, um, like with the language, and it's pretty important to us. And as soon as, uh, you know, I just had that opportunity of saying, hey, uh, through Thurka, you could do this um, language through songs and, and just having that opportunity to do it. And, and what language do you speak? Jingli. Jingli from up in the Elliot region. Yep, Elliot region, Barclay region. Yeah, cool. And how many? How many? I understand that there's there's not many speakers of the language. Yeah, there. exactly. Um, yeah, with uh, the language um, where I come from, there's only um, yeah, just um, five speakers left that speak this language. And yeah, it's uh, very important for us to bring it back. And yeah, it's it, it is scary. I mean, you know, like like you said, five people that speak it, and how important is it for you to be able to um, record that your language and and have it in an album that can be played for ever? Oh, it's very important, um, especially for the younger generation, and hopefully to to inspire the younger generation back back at home um, to make them understand that it's very important for us for language because that's what language connects us to country land culture and it's mainly the importance of of who you are exactly do you think a lot of the younger mob understand the importance or of you know keeping culture alive and and language Uh, yeah it's kind of hard to reach out to young people and I think the best way that to do it is through music and Hopefully that will bring pride back to these young people and to make them understand that this is um, very important to us as um, Aboriginal people, that language is important for us all. Like It's what connects us, what brings us together, and it's, it's part of who you are, your life. Yeah, it, it is a very big part of uh, all of our culture, Aboriginal culture. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So how, how did you go about writing your songs? What what inspired you to do that? Uh, with my mum now, and uh, like I said earlier on, that's five speakers, and learning from my mum, and she's one of the speakers, um, just getting it all and speaking it proper, and um, just sitting with her and just understanding and listening to the language, and that what's inspired me to write music and just in language and yeah 
Because that's another very important part as well is pronunciation and yeah, like yeah, yeah. And before I could uh, even put into song, you know, I, could, I after learned how to speak it, and it was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that would be pretty hard to be able to learn to learn to speak it again as well. Yeah, was there much recording of the language done before, like writing it down or anything like that? Or oh anything? yeah, there were um, like linguistics that was like oh, many years ago that came up there uh, and started to write it down and and um and you could say scholars or some like people from university that came up there and learned the language and written it down and all that and yeah it's just um learning and um getting all that information back and and start to revive it again did that yeah. really help with the actual um relearning and and like the pronunciation yep yep yeah. yeah it was great um and as soon as they heard that uh that we're going to record here at karma and 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 it's going to be in jingle in, in jingling they were like yeah we'll give you guys a hand and start sending us book books and how proud were your family when they heard oh really good like it's yeah it's never been done before like um yeah it's really they were really grateful really yeah they were really happy so did um you know the recording of this album and the whole process and um you know having to relearn your language and pronunciation and that kind of stuff did it give you the um did it inspire you to want to learn more yeah um just inspired me and pride too it brings back pride um and just to you know, just learning more of it and just wanting more and um, and teaching others and and it's yeah it's just especially just letting people like countrymen out there knowing that how important the language is to us you know and just getting that message across. How many people are there in in your community? Uh, there's three, three hundred. Yeah. yeah, and plus people were like some some of them not living in Elliot, but they're yeah living somewhere else in other communities. And so, how how do you think the language is lost or sort of not spoken? What sort of things made it hard for people to speak the language? I think it was like uh, old people too were like passing on, and there were not much teachers around, and um, yeah, a lot of uh, young people. I'm mean, including myself when I was growing up. I didn't have the chance to sit down with old people and elders and it was really hard to learn the language and plus like going to school and you know some of them that yeah you couldn't speak in your own languages and yeah that made it hard and but getting it back now learning it's a whole different thing because because yeah. Elliot and, and the surrounding areas is very remote in the territory. I mean, what, what's the closest school? Like a couple hundred kilometers. Yeah, um, yeah. It was like a, a college here too, and um, Alice, you are a college, and there's um, a college up and down, Camilda, and all that. Yeah, it's like it's still yeah, pretty it's far away. To pretty get. far away from home. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah, being far away to study and all that, and then you know come back home. It's yeah, it was pretty hard. Tell us a bit more about your album. How many how many tracks on the album? Uh, five tracks. Yep, um, all in Jingli. What, what's your What's your favorite song? What's the, What's the um, thing that really stands out to you? Yeah, it's. Uh, I 
can't pick which one's great, but I'll just say that like it's 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 all good songs. It's all great songs, and it means all our songs have stories, and yeah, I just hope people like it, and, <laughs> and yeah, I hope they hear it and they like it. Yeah. Now, tell us a bit about uh, your feature song. I, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce it, so I'm going to let you pronounce it. Yeah, yeah, it's a song about a woman. Yeah, so it's kind of a love song. Just came to me like to understanding how young people would like songs like that you know like um, love songs and losing a loved one or have feelings for a woman and uh, just having uh, just a enjoying feeling like just you know just having a listen to it and say hey that's a great song that's a good song and just mainly reaching out to like uh, young people and, and people out there who mm-hmm. like a catchy tune or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, now tell us a bit about the album cover. I understand there's uh, a few nice pictures on there and, and a bit of uh, artwork. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it was uh, not very sure. It's been a while back. I have to get my memory. But um, yeah, it was uh, shot at um, around here in Alice Springs. And uh, I have to give the credit to uh, Amy. It's the uh, artwork and uh, the and a painter and a photographer. So she's. I like the old photo in the in the cover. Tell us a bit about that one. Yeah, it's uh, uh, an old photo. Um, it's got three of my grandfathers in there: uh, my father's father and my mother's father. It's a very old photo that's behind Newcastle Waters. Don't know how old it is, but um, it's and it's history for us too. Um, yeah, we had a discussion about um, putting this photo in the album, and it was great that um, yeah, it's on the album. It's on a. Yeah, yeah, be a good, uh, good tribute to uh, our mob just passed. Yeah. Uh, now, just wanted to ask you as well. Do you hope to encourage uh, more countrymen out there to to go back and and learn a bit more of their culture and language and, and, and keep it strong? Yeah, and to yeah to to reach out to um, countrymen out there to eventually to understand that language is very important to us and it's very important uh, being Aboriginal. But it's like how I said earlier, you know, it's connection through country, connection through land, who you are. It's just so important to have that. And it's such amazing to be here and doing this. And to, yeah, I hope it inspires a lot of countrymen too to stay strong in language and culture. Don't, don't ever lose that. Yeah. Mm. On that note, uh, uh, Stuart Nugget, uh, thanks very much for joining me here on Calm Radio. Ah, thank you. That was uh, Karma's Damien Williams speaking with uh, Aboriginal solo artist there, Stuart Nugget. We're going to be hearing very soon from uh, Dwayne Hamaka very soon here on Karma Radio. We're going to go to a quick track now, though, and then we'll be right back. Hi, guys. This is Dan Sutton, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices, and you're here with me, Kyle Dowling. Well, on to our next story now. Uh, Dwayne Hamaka is, uh, an, is an Associate Professor of Indigenous Astronomy and Science, researching cultural and historical astronomy, Indigenous knowledge, dark sky studies, intangible astronomical heritage and oral tradition. He works closely with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across Australia, as well as Indigenous communities in Thailand, as well as the US and Canada. And he also works to increase Indigenous representation in the astronomical and space sciences in Australia. Karma's Paul Wiles recently had the opportunity to speak with Duane. Well, Dwayne, we've seen in the media again great coverage, uh, re-astrophysicists uh, coming out of Monash University, and particularly uh, Aboriginal astrophysicists. You've been working uh, in this program for some time. You must be uh, really happy with the way things are going. Oh, it's fantastic. It's so great to see 
young Aboriginal people who were working in astrophysics now starting to explore more of the cultural side of astronomy and Indigenous astronomy in particular. And we've got so much research that's been coming out in this space that students are getting involved in this. And it's a really good opportunity for them to build their profiles and for the public to start to hear about this stuff from, I think, a more appropriate person as opposed to maybe another white American guy like myself. Having said that, though, I think um, from an academic level, we've had some conversations in the past, but it's always nice to keep reminding the wider non-Indigenous community that Indigenous astronomy and study of the stars, all of the things that are often accredited to Western society. But uh, certainly in the last few decades, we have seen globally a much greater acknowledgement and understanding of the role of Indigenous culture and their study of the stars. That's exactly right. And it's, it's one of those things that it shouldn't surprise anyone. I mean, through all the years of research that I've been doing in this area and learning from the elders across Australia, it shouldn't be surprising. I mean, we should absolutely expect that cultures who've been around and who are as careful observers of nature and everything around us would have figured this stuff out long ago. And, of course, that's the case. It just doesn't get recognized by non-Indigenous Australians. And it, in some, time, some cases, it almost seems threatening. People are threatened by this. And even the article that um, was about this interview with Crystal Dinopoli here at Monash, a young Aboriginal Gomorrah woman who's working with me on a project, the, the amount of horrible racist comments is just overwhelming and it, it seems like a constant uphill battle but something that we're very excited and very passionate about doing is making sure that the general public knows that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have very very long-standing knowledge systems and there's a tremendous amount we can learn from these if we just sort of stop and listen. Historically the wider non-indigenous communities will always uh, relate back to other early cultures, the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians but uh, with Aboriginal First Nations culture history connection to this country, we're talking about a time that precedes all of that by many many years. Exactly right, I think in most cases it's a case of whataboutism. So what about this group here? Well, yeah, so what? We're not saying other cultures didn't also have deep knowledge systems, but it becomes uh, a factor when people want to push this false idea of superiority of Western civilization. It often harks back to those sorts of things. But, you know, leaving all that aside, these knowledge systems go back so far, and, and you know, we're doing work with communities now that show some of these traditions can go back over 10,000 years. I mean, that's, it's gobsmacking when you think about the amount of time this stuff has been handed down through oral tradition. And I suppose if you know anything about orality and you're in a community, uh, you know this stuff. This isn't surprising. But to most people, you know, in Western society who worship the written word, unless it's written down, it doesn't really exist. And that's been one of the biggest problems we've had trying to convince people that these knowledge systems can be passed down through oral tradition is because people don't understand the power of orality. Again, I think we have mentioned in the past uh, many of the Aboriginal uh, drawings um, of the landscape uh, have been mapped from uh, space by satellites and, um, you know, they're remarkably accurate. And these are done from just knowledge of walking on country, knowing 
where everything is on country. And again, when you put that into perspective, uh, the same as, uh, you know, mathematical systems, because it was done differently and not from a perspective that Western science and mathematics could get its head around, it wasn't considered accurate. But I think as time goes on, we're seeing more and more evidence that would suggest otherwise. Exactly right. And it's something that Western science can learn so much from. Because of this idea of sort of Western cultural superiority, you know, it's easy for us to think, non-Indigenous scientists think, oh, we, we know better, we've got it all figured out, when in reality we don't have it all figured out, and there's so much we can learn. And at the same time, it's also important for scientists like myself, you know, and I try to communicate this to all my colleagues and, and to the general public, that Indigenous science and indigenous knowledge is inherently valuable. It has value. It's valid in its own right. It doesn't need to be validated by Western science. It doesn't need Western scientists to come along and say, oh, we support that, and now it's right. But as some elders have said, we don't need it, but it's nice when you show it. You're involved in what many would consider top-end academia as far as uh, intellectual capacity, if we can call it that. But uh, again... When we start looking at other areas involving the ability of the First Nations to think on a different level, thinking outside of the square often. I mean, we've seen at a very basic level, uh, bush mechanics, I think, really brought that home to many Australians. And this is going back 20, 30 years ago, but people forget quickly. But uh, I think then what people did take on board was this mob, they look at problem solving differently and they come up with a solution. So in that sense, many areas across the board that, um, you know, for so long the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander population haven't been considered worthy of taking part in. I mean, is it now time for other areas of academia to start taking a better look? It absolutely is, and that's something that we're working on across the board. Uh, here at the University of Melbourne, where I've only recently started working, we're integrating Indigenous knowledge into all the courses across the entire Faculty of Science, and that's happening on, on a university-wide level, too. We're developing you know, uh, breadth courses, general education subjects on Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous science. We're looking at even starting one specifically on Indigenous astronomy and physics. There's so much that can be done in this space, and it's important that the next generation of scientists and scholars who are going to be working and doing research understand the deep intellectual and innovative capabilities of Australia's First Nations people. This is something that needs to be taught and people need to consider because we're finding out, you know, scientists, colleagues of mine, we're finding out new stuff all the time just by looking at traditional knowledge systems. And it's really critically important that we recognize that, that we show that Western science and indigenous science are not the same thing, but they're both equally valid and they're both capable of teaching us quite a bit if we look at them together. So tearing down these barriers, Dwayne, I mean, you know, you've obviously been plugging away for a while. Are there many people out there in academia actually hearing what you say? Yes, it's been phenomenal. I remember 10 years ago I went to a conference and presented a couple of posters on Aboriginal astronomy, and I got very mixed responses. And largely... And I suppose, not surprisingly, the voices were positive or negative, depending on their accent. 
a lot of the Australian accents were not very positive, and it was the non-Australian accents that were largely positive. Uh, but in 10 years, we've gone a long way, and there are a lot of scientific organizations and societies who are seriously committed to learning more about this, to recognizing indigenous science, to integrating it, and to getting more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into these areas and supporting them through their entire academic journey and career. So that's something that it's happening across the board. People are listening. You know, we're doing workshops across the country with organizations like ATSIMA. I've just written Indigenous Astronomy to the National Curriculum, and others have written in Water and Fire, uh, working here at Melbourne Uni with Marcia Langton. So people are listening. People are getting it. There's still those out there who don't want to listen. They don't want to hear it. Uh, doesn't matter how many hardcore, rigorous academic papers we publish in the topic, people are just going to start shouting BS. They don't want to hear it. But the reality is we are getting somewhere. We are making ground. Dwayne, just to finish off, I mean, if you had a, a, some words of encouragement to the mob living out remotely in bush communities, uh, remote communities, having to sit down in a, a white fella uh, learning place of academia um, when perhaps they should be spending more time out on country going through ceremony and doing the cultural uh, learning cycle, which is almost like going to high school and uni and everything that they have to acquire as part of that journey. But uh, as part of the Western education system, I mean, many of these kids are struggling, A, because of language, but B, they don't see the relevance. I mean, what what could you say to them about, you know, hanging in there with education and then perhaps in another few more years, there may be more windows of opportunity for them to engage at, at something they want to engage with? I would say you're being heard, you're supported. We want to learn from you. We want to share a journey of knowledge exploration where we can look at the interface between traditional indigenous knowledge and Western science. And it's a fantastic opportunity to try to come up with some solutions to some of the many problems we face today. And it's going to be a combination of indigenous knowledge of Western science where that innovation is going to come from. So it's, it's really important that any students out there, any kids out there, anybody out there who's thinking about this, we're listening, we support you, and we can make this happen. I think it would be fantastic for people to know about the new national curriculum stuff that we've written. It's on astronomy, water, and fire. It's across um, all subjects for several of the years for primary and secondary, like years five and years eight in particular for astronomy across all the subject levels. Um, it's an opportunity for people to go out there and see how we're starting to integrate indigenous knowledge into all the different subject areas, including science and mathematics. And you can find all that on our website at aboriginalastronomy.com.au. That was uh, Karma's Paul. I was speaking with Associate Professor uh, Dwayne Harmica there here on uh, Karma Radio. Uh, we're going to be hearing the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Yes, that's right. You're listening to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio. Great to have your company this morning. And now it's time for the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Very happy to welcome into the studio uh, Karma's Lorena Walker and Damien Williams. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. We'll start with you, Lorraine. I understand you've got a story this morning about uh, an Aboriginal accountant who's uh, using his profession to help the mob. Yeah, that's right. So his name is Steve Rossi, I think. 
Ross Tsai, um, and he he uh, was working as the director of the Northern Territory Treaty Commission. Um, but yeah, he's also um, his profession is actually accounting. So obviously, it is tax time, and everyone is looking, you know, for the for the best tax person or whoever. But yeah, he's using um, his he's decided to use his. Um, profession as accounting to help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within the Northern Territory um, and he's had a yeah a pretty lengthy career working both within the Australian Taxation Office um, many Aboriginal organisations including Congress um, and yeah throughout the NT so yeah he's just wanting to open the opportunity up and also like let people know that accounting is a good profession to be in also yeah and when it comes around to that to the the year for taxation so yeah he's just out there um offering his um expertise and um helping a lot of the mob up in the top end as well that's good and and i think you know having as much mob involved in spaces like that and having services uh, like what he's providing i think for the mob where the mob are able to you know feel comfortable engaging within that space i think is really important yeah he also mentioned like it's not just accounting like he's also in hr it monitoring for organization corporate business interests and things like that Mm. so it can also lead to other um ongoing um you know different venues you can or different things you can do within an organization or organizations so yeah that's really good and you know things like um you know, like Australian supermanies and things like that. I think anything like that yeah, within that space, I think, yeah. you know, we're dealing with money and things like that with finances, I think is really important. To uh, get right. Yeah, that's right. Like, it, it can be a yeah. bit daunting too. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you kind of don't know. And I mean, you, then you learn, you know, skills and ways to be able to, um, you know, um, look after your money better as well and, and be able to, yeah, take advantage of things that are already out there to be able to save your money and stuff. Mm. Yeah, um, and just quickly, like he's just he's he's worked in so many organisations, but the struggle for Aboriginal land rights, the self determination within um, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, um, you know, workforce as well. So he's yeah he's I watch this space because I hopefully I get an interview with him either today or tomorrow. Definitely be very good to hear from him. Uh, on to you now, Dame. I understand uh, you've got a story about uh, Aboriginal uh, men and war veterans sort of collaborating. Yeah, just quickly, um, Australian war veterans um, who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder have formed a unique bond with young Aboriginal men from remote communities um, with an extreme um, endurance event bringing the uh, two sides together. Um, This is a story from uh, SBS um, NRTV. The Kapani Warriors is a military-style program which brings uh, the Aboriginal men, youth and um, war veterans together to learn and heal one another um, in what is driving force sweeping the Cape York area as well. Um, the One of the founders of the program, Dr. Tim White, served in Somalia in 93 and when he returned to the country suffering uh, devastating civil war and uh, yeah, he just grew, he grew up in an Aboriginal community and is one of the few non-Aboriginal um, people in Arakoon who can speak with the local dialect as well. So yeah, just getting those two groups together to help um, deal with the stresses of the young Aboriginal men through life and stuff, what they're battling through 
through and the war veterans um, from, uh, you know, conflicts that they've been involved with as well. So, um, yeah, a nice program there to bring two worlds together. And it's sort of using that that physical side as well, I guess, with the, you know, that whole process alongside with the mental, which is always, you know, it's good to make sure you're maintaining both. And I think definitely the mental side is something that people do forget. So I think, you know, any sort of support that people can get within that space. And, you know, I think it always helps when people are able to speak with someone who, you know, while they may not be going through the exact same thing, may have had sort of similar Similar. experiences. And still suffer from uh, that kind of um, Mm. PTSD as well. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, Damien, Lorena, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's going to conclude Strong Voices for this morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to listen back to the program or any of the interviews that we played for you, you can head to our uh, Karma SoundCloud where we'll be posting up a podcast of today's episode. Thank you once again, and thank you to all our special guests who joined us on the program as well. Strong Voices. Good job.